Ladies and gentlemen, my name is James Murphy and I'm the Chief Executive of the Royal Philharmonic Society. It's a great pleasure to be here at the Beckstein Room at the Wigmore Hall with one of our most treasured artists. <laughs> I always feel that one cannot possibly, in a few sentiments, do justice to uh, a career like Jane's. Nonetheless, she has of course conducted at the world's great opera houses. She was a pioneering artistic director of the London Mozart Players, music director of Glyndebourne, touring opera, Director of Opera at the Royal Academy of Music, where of course she has done so much to nurture the opera stars of the future and continue the heritage. And to this day she is music director of Music of the Baroque. She's recorded countless discs and written two books, Mozart's Women and the new Handel in London, The Making of a Genius, which we are here principally to talk about today. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read the book, but it really is like going back in a time machine. Incredibly evocative in its detail and its sort of sensory pleasures in creating a very important moment in music in this country. But Jane, before we go right back there, let's go back um, to a different moment. At the start of the book, you, you account how you came to um, effectively meet Handel. I think a, a performance of The Messiah when you were nine years old. And you say something to the effect of, even then, you sense that, that your calling might lie in this. Can you take us back to that moment and, and describe this, the feeling? Uh, yes, I, I mean, I, I feel a little um, diffident talking about that moment in, in these great walls because there have been so many child prodigies or people who've started very young being brilliant um, come through this place. And I was no child prodigy at all. I was a very normal child. Um, but there was this sort of road to Damascus moment when I was nine, and I did hear my first Messiah in possibly the coldest building in the UK, which was Lincoln Cathedral on <laughs> Christmas Eve. Um, and I was simply blown away by it, not, not just by um, you know, the, the, the sort of big stuff uh, and the, the sort of force of, of, of the variety of it and the Alleluia Chorus, of course, and the big Amen, but also by the intimate stuff. It just sort of spoke to me in a curious way. And of course, I wasn't an articulate nine-year-old, but that something from that moment, music was important to me. I mean, I played the piano by then. I was about to play the oboe as well. And, but from that moment, uh, music was the sort of driving force mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. So whiskers briefly through your career and um, the role that Handel's played in it, um, notable performances, and, and how he in particular came to um, really entrance you. Well, um, Handel is one of the constants in my, in my life, really. I mean, I, I began, as you may know, as a, as a, a specialist in, um, in 17th century music in that uh, my in fact, I've written three books because my first book was on Cavalli and it was instantly remaindered. So, <laughs> so as, as somebody once said to me, ah, obviously a classic. <laughs> we'll all be hunting for that on eBay <laughs> after right. this. Um, but uh, I did start on the music of Monteverdi and Cavalli, composers I still work in and still adore. Um, I was a month ago in, 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 in Venice conducting Monteverdi uh, and it's still very much part of me. But I sort of shifted forward into the 18th century. I mean, I, know I cover all bases, uh, really, except I've never done the ring. Um, and I don't There's think still time. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I, love, I love the ring. And, I mean, of course there are gaps, but I do go all the way to 21st century music, which I also love to do. And, I think it's terribly important that we all keep doing. 
Um, but in a way, my heart is in the 18th century, um, certainly with, with Mozart, who is my other sort of god, um, and Bach and Handel and Haydn. And I mean, you know, these are the four great pillars of 18th century music, and they are absolutely the pillars of my repertoire. Um, as it happens, I've now done 108 performances of Messiah. Um, I feel you must, should have got a telegram from someone important yes. <laughs> after 100. Well, <laughs> funnily enough, my 100th performance was with the Cleveland Orchestra, no less, right. uh, yeah. in Cleveland last, and they gave, me <laughs> they gave me a bag with St. Jane Glover conducts her 100th performance. I was so proud of this, uh, <laughs> it was absolutely charming. Um, uh, yeah, and I've done you know, many of the oratorios and many of the operas, uh, not all of them, because as, as, as you know, you said to me just now, there were ones you'd never even heard of. Mm -hmm. He was incredibly prolific. Um, and some of them I've done more than once. And uh, it's like all great music. It comes back to every time you come round to it again, it, you have more to discover and more to say and more to be rewarded by. And it's it's a great it's a great way of making a living. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so, so was there a moment when you thought, right, I need to put pen to paper and uh, encapsulate this in words somehow? Well, it's funny. As I said, you mentioned uh, twelve years ago, I wrote a book about uh, Mozart, um, uh, which which did quite well. And then everybody said, well, you must write another book. And I said, no. no, no. Um, and my, it's actually my literary agent said to me, I think you should write about Handel. And I thought, well, actually, I do do a lot of Handel. And of course, like Mozart, there are a million books about Handel, and they're all very, very good. But uh, with my Mozart book, you know, you, with all of us, we, we sort of shine the light on a very familiar territory from a different angle. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you get a slightly different view. Um, and in the case of Mozart, I, I looked at Mozart through the women in his life, which was fascinating. It wasn't at all a, um, a book about women. It was actually my book about him, but it was seen through these amazing women in his life. With Handel, I, it, because of, as you say, I've had a career in music and conducting and, and putting, um, putting things together, in a sense, uh, in the way of that great Sondheim song. Um, uh, it was fascinating for me to, to, to look at Handel as not just a composer of this or that or that or that in different parts of his life, but actually to follow his arrival in London, and which was just a sort of almost arbitrary decision on his part to sort of come here in 1710 because he'd, he'd had a go in Rome and in Venice and he'd been invited to all sorts of other places and he probably had his thing. He, you know, he had itchy feet. Um, and as a young man, and he thought well, maybe Paris or Prague or you know Vienna or Berlin, all these musical centres which might have called him. But he was invited to London, and something spoke to him about London, and he stayed here. I mean, he went back to Hanover, where he had this relationship with the Elector, which of course was going to be important when the Hanoverian came. The Hanoverians came here as royal, the royal family. Um, but he just kept coming back to, to London, and of course he stayed for the best part of 50 years and changed our lives. And I thought, and the life of music, actually, mm -hmm. um, I thought if I just followed him year by year to see how that happened, because I, I, I think that's something that nobody else has particularly done. And the fact that, that 
I sort of do it too. Do you know? I mean, I'm not in any. I don't write. I don't write operas and oratorios, but I do work in opera companies and put on or, and put on oratorios and put companies together and deal with to to a certain extent with people who hold the purse strings. You know, there is so much more to excuse me to um, putting on music than simply writing and putting it on. You know, you have to um, just the whole sort of business side of it. At which, by the way, Handel was completely brilliant, and this was a great discovery for me to see how how he went from year to year and things that happened. You know, the Queen died, the Hanoverians came in. Um, you know, this one died, that one took over. Uh, various um, um, singers arrived, were successful, then they lost their voices and moved on. Um, uh, other composers came and were uh, rivals to him and so on. And there were great troughs as well as great peaks and somehow he surged through it all and it was just a great journey for me to, to, to do that with him in a, in a very, um, well, year by year to see how he did it. And, and then of course when you get to the last eight or nine years, it begins to be heartbreaking because the man has become blind mm -hmm. and uh, when that is almost the worst disability for a musician, for a composer, I mean the worst disability for a composer of course is what Beethoven had which is not being able to hear what's going on. He still heard it inside but he couldn't hear it re for real. But being blind as a composer in the 18th century is means you simply cannot see to put notes on paper. You cannot any longer do the physical business of writing music. And although he went on performing for a while, while he was still um, uh, active, <coughs> um, it, he would play organ concertos and things, and he would obviously improvise crazily. Which, can you imagine being uh, one of the string players thinking, oh my goodness, where's he going now? You know, <laughs> um, Just how exciting that right. must have been. Um, uh, and then, of course, the end uh, is, uh, well, just to see him through to that uh, little death in, um, in Brook Street, just not far away from here. Indeed, it's, it's such a treasure trove. There's so much for you to, to delve into. Uh, let's come back to London, which is very much a principal character in the book. It shares, it shares the title with the composer. And reading it, you, sort of, you can almost, almost smell the hay in the hay market. Um, you've really given us such a wonderful portrait aside from the composer of the city um, in which we live. And in some ways, it's vastly different from London now, but in some ways, it, it's quite similar. Um, what were your discoveries about London, or what beguiled you um, as you were painting this picture of the city? Well, I, I, I was, I'm always interested in context, you know, that uh, music is always a product of the society which creates it. It's not just, I'm now going to write a symphony, you know, it, it has to, somebody's got to commission it and, and somebody's going to perform it. And there is a political uh, background and there is a social background. And, and what is it like for a young 25-year-old energetic, charismatic genius, which he was, I don't use the word lightly, but he was, to come to um, a city <coughs> which is curiously parochial in the musical sense. Um, the... the um, the musical centre of, of Europe was Italy at the time. It was about to move to Germany, I think. And uh, certainly because Italy invented opera and it was about to invent the symphony and opera, which had travelled throughout Europe, had come here and we had... Uh, our own composers had tried to write English operas, for instance, and 
sort of, it didn't really work. And so sometimes, well, let's, let's do some Italian operas and, and, and sing in, in Italian. And then they rather liked that. And they've got these extravagant um, uh, foreign exotic singers to come, you know, castrati, for heaven's sake, um, to come and sing. Um, and and it, was, it became a craze. And uh, you would think well, this craze would burn itself out after a bit because uh, uh, it was basically foreign stories sung in a foreign language by foreign singers. And you know, the, apart from the people who'd been on their grand tours, which was quite a lot of the audience actually, but uh, you know, not everybody spoke Italian. So you think there's a certain amount of lack of comprehension in the audiences. And so this, surely this, this Italian opera um, enthusiasm will burn out in five years, a decade at the outside. The fact that Handel went on writing operas in London for 30 years is completely astonishing. And it was because he managed to, to get the right people uh, in, from the, uh, the sort of patrician end of, of, of London, you know, Lord this and Viscount that, <laughs> and indeed King that. He mm. certainly got the King behind him every time. Uh, began with the Queen, Anne, we all know so much more about her now, don't we, after that film? <laughs> but um, but I, I promise you, I wrote my bit about Queen Anne before the film came out. Um, and, uh, but then the Georges. Uh, Queen Anne was spectacularly unmusical, but she uh, <laughs> did take a rather bit of a shine to this sort of charismatic German, and so she gave him a royal pension. Uh, jolly nice. So when the Hanoverians came in, they said, oh yes, well, we'll continue that. For this reason, Handel himself never had to worry about money. And uh, what a joy that was. Um, but uh, it meant he also had the king on side. He worked very hard to keep the king on side. And his son, who became George II, they had a dreadful relationship between George I and George II, but somehow Handel kept in with both of them. Um, and then the, 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 as it were, the House of Lords who supported him and, and, and gave him money and so on. All this was fascinating to me to find, this is not an answer to your question at all, I do apologise, but <laughs> it's sort of, it's, the, it's what I'm talking about, context of actually how do you get people to pay for something that they essentially are not sure they want to see. <laughs> well, it seems to me, certainly reading the book, that, that the audience were as fascinated by the royal patronage as, as what was going on stage. Um, well, and you account, I think, at the, the premiere of Radomisto, was it, where George I and, and the Prince of Wales, soon to be George II, met for the first time. Well, and they were sort of seen reunited by music. They uh, were seen in public for the first time, yes. And this was this almost uh, stole the show, absolutely. They'd, they'd had a dreadful falling out. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of recurring theme in the Hanoverian um, uh, uh, gene pool, if you like, uh, because George I and George II never got on. George II and his own son, Frederick, who actually predeceased him, um, we're in dreadful terms. I mean, uh, it's absolutely dreadful, and uh, and so on. It just sort of continued, and then then came George the Third, and we know about him. So they're they're, they're all a bit bonkers, the, the Hanoverians. But um, the the great thing is that they all liked Handel, including George the Third, who never met him. But uh, it, and um, they are crucial to the fact that we still have him. They loved Handel. I mean, you account many times over that they would come to maybe four or five or six performances uh, when, when a show opened. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's important also to, to point out that George II uh, and his wonderful wife, Caroline, whom I 
think is uh, now there's a subject for a book, and I think Jonathan Keats is going to write a bit about her, which I do hope he will because he's just the right person to do it. But uh, Queen Caroline was a wonderful woman, um, very artistic, very intelligent, um, and had great relationships with philosophers and mathematicians and musicians. She and George II were about the same age as Fred, uh, our George Frederick Handel. They had all met in Hanover when they were in their early 20s. They had become good friends then. So when they all turned up in London, that friendship continued and I think was crucial. Um, and so, you know, when George II inherited the throne in 1727, um, it was, of course, Handel that he wanted to write his coronation music. None of these British composers, whose noses must have been a little bit out of joint, I think. You know, the people running Westminster Abbey and the Chapel Royal and St Paul's, they would have thought, yes, well, this is what we get, is our coronation. And it, mm -mm. Handel writes these anthems for George II's coronation, and of course, one of those anthems, Zadok the Priest, has been performed at every coronation since. And so um, uh, that is very important. So he, he was sort of connected to the royal family and wrote births, marriages and deaths. You know, he wrote for, um, uh, or coronations, marriages and deaths, uh, literally all of those. And the music he wrote for the funeral, for instance, of Queen, uh, of Queen Caroline uh, is a 45 minute cantata um, and it's, I believe, a very personal statement. It's not just a, a piece for a, a ceremonial occasion in Westminster Abbey. It's, it's a personal statement about somebody who's actually lost a friend. Uh, there, are, there are a few occasions in Handel's life where he wears his heart on his sleeve, and I think that's one of them. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, he was so close to, to the Queen. He clearly um, was very sort of skillful in the way he nurtured the royal family in terms of his fundraising um, capacity. Uh, all musicians, all artists, have to like you know have challenges in fundraising. Um, how do you think he went about this? What did he do well? Um, well, I, for one thing, he was he understood money. Uh, uh, he was extremely good at money, and I say this with some. Um, <laughs> Well, some poignancy, really, because my other great hero, Mozart, was so hopeless for money. <laughs> he never had any. Um, if he did have it, he gave it away. Um, if he didn't have it, he spent it anyway. I mean, he was absolutely useless. And, you know, the worst thing about Mo the, the, the Mozart letters are those heartbreaking letters where he's begging for money. Handel was brilliant with money. Uh, he knew, I mean, okay, he had this, this nice base to his life, which was his royal pa pa um, uh, pension. But he, he played the stock market all the time. He was always rushing off to the city and buying and selling shares. And he just had a nose for the markets. For instance, he bought shares in the South Sea Company at just the right time and sold them at just the right time. <laughs> so uh, he sold them and made a killing. And a year later, of course, it crashed with the bubble. And many of his friends were ruined. He and a few others. No, the, the man called Thomas Guy, who made a great deal of money out of it, and then founded Guy's Hospital, for instance. You know, there were two or three of them who, who just made a great deal of money out of it. So he was very good at it. And somehow people who are good at money are good at attracting it. And uh, I mean, going back to the royals, 
uh, and the politics, really. He was, while there were feuds between the different generations of the royal household, he managed to keep in with everybody. You know, uh, he was good with Queen, with with, with uh, George the First, even when he was rowing with George the Second, and and so on with with Prince Frederick. He he was just very clever at keeping a distance, and we never know. I have no idea, for instance, how he might have voted. I've got a little idea, but I mean, he we don't know, and. and I think if he saw a fence, he sat on it rather successfully, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and that applies in in politics and in business and uh, etc. I mean, he was just a, a clever operator. It seems so much of what he was doing hasn't really changed. We we are dealing with all the same things ourselves in our own circumstances. Well, you know, um, as Dr. Johnson said at the time, um, the drama's laws, the drama's patrons give. For we that live to please must please to live. So, uh, you know, you need to do the right thing, otherwise you don't get your cash. And that's what he was so good at. You chronicle the staging of opera in uh, wonderful detail. The rival houses, the quixotic audiences, and the luring of international stars. And here again, it seems that very little Overpay changed. Overpaid <laughs> opera stars, yes. <laughs> Um, foreigners. Uh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. No, 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 no. Delete. <laughs> um, no, but actually, I defend these overpaid opera stars. Uh, they were paid a huge amount of money. Um, and indeed, the famous uh, castrato, Senesino, who made so much money year after year that he went back to Siena, which is where he come from, which is where his name's comes from, Senesino, the little man from Siena. And he was little, he was tiny and round, but had this fantastic voice. Um, he went back and bought a palace and, and decorated and, and furnished it and, and with wonderful stuff. And he even had an inscription over the door that, it was that the, this palazzo was furnished by the idiocy of the English audiences. <laughs> 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 um, but I defend these singers because if you look at their schedules and if you look at what they did in the course of a season, uh, the number of, uh, they were probably l performing four or five or even six operas a season. In the case of Senesino, they were probably all title roles. It's like the old repertory company. You were, you were learning one, rehearsing another, and performing another at the same time. I think they really earned their money. And then you think um, about just the whole logistics of you know rehearsing and parts and music and where, is that, where all that's coming from. It's staggering, the schedules that these guys and handle, handle at the top had immense energy, and he had an immense, immensely important team of people working for him in the sense of copyists and and um, uh, and players, of course. But basically, he was driving that engine, and um, it, it was just it was the those singers really, really earned their keep. I think I, I don't begrudge them a single penny of it. Uh, also, you know, as with many singers. Um, after a while, they, they come upon vocal problems and their careers are short. Uh, they were shorter then than they are now. It's interesting. Our, our singers, I think, are, are more resilient. Maybe they look after themselves better. They have better vitamins and antibiotics. Um, you know, seriously, I yeah, think that cool. has a lot to do with it. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if a, a singer gets to, in Handel's day, gets to 40, 
then they've done well. Um, but uh, after that, things are beginning to disappear. And, you, and what, another thing that, was, that I learnt from the book is, is seeing how the singers, which singers return to him in season after season, and the sort of stuff he's writing for them season after season. And you can see how voices are changing, for instance. I mean, there's a singer called Anastasia Robinson, half Italian, half English, who sang for him quite early. And she was a high soprano, and she sang for him for about 20 years. And you could see that the stuff he writes for her gradually gets lower. Mm. You can see that she's losing the top of her voice, the top of her register. And indeed, um, in, uh, in the late 20s, when he wrote Ottone, which was the uh, opera in which he was introducing the great Italian diva, problematic diva, but brilliant singer called um, uh, uh, Cuzzoni, Francesca Cuzzoni. And she had been brought over to London with the great fanfares in the press and everything. This is, this is the greatest voice. And indeed, she was a fantastic <coughs> artist. And her relationship with Senesino, the castrato, was hugely crucial to um, Handel's success. But this Anastasia Robinson must have felt a little um, like many of the homegrown singers, you know, when the, this, this great fanfare for, for Cuzzoni was in the press, must have already been feeling a little vulnerable. And then she's losing the top of her register. And um, she, when he, she's handed her, her music for, for Ottoni, there's an aria she feels she cannot sing. And because she's lost her coloratura, and he's uh, Handel is writing fast music for her, which he's been writing for her, but she knows that she can no longer do that. And she's so upset by this, and, and uh, I think it quite eloquently, um, she cannot talk to Handel directly about it. She goes to uh, um, a go-between and says, could you possibly ask Handel if if he could rewrite something for her. And, uh, and he, of course, understands that. And I love him for that, that, that of course, we don't need to do that, Aria. We will, we will um, he writes her something that would suit her. It's lower, it's, it's slower, and, it's, and she does, she sings well for a couple of seasons and retires after that. Uh, meanwhile, Cuzzoni coming into this very sa same opera, um, Ottone, decided at the first rehearsal, this is the famous story about him and her, decided at the first rehearsal she didn't like her opening aria, which is called Falsa Imagine, gorgeous aria, slow. It's, ju it, it's just a continue aria, just the harpsichord and the cello and her. And I, she clearly wanted something flashier to announce her arrival in London, you know, something <laughs> with lots of color. She got plenty of that later. But, and so she said she wasn't going to sing it. At this point, according to her biographer, Mannering, her first biographer, who's a little unreliable, but his stories are great, and I do love this one. Uh, Handel said, um, I am Beelzebub, the devil, and if you don't sing this, I shall throw you out of the window. He threatened to throw her out of the window. Now, I don't think in any way this is, uh, this has often been interpreted as a sign of his temper. I don't think it's a sign of his temper. I think it's actually a sign of his humour and his clever way of dealing with divas and saying, no, 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 I'm in charge here. If you don't sing this, we'll throw you out of the window. And she sang the aria obediently, and I may say sang it for the next 30 years. She would sing it in recitals. L at the end of her career, she was still singing. It was one he knew that this would suit her very well. And um, she obediently sang it, and then the many flashy arias that she sang as well. <laughs>
Uh, you account at one point as well that Hogarth uh, immortalised her in one of his etchings. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, yes. There's a wonderful. There's a wonderful picture. Of one of his his engravings of a pub, is it a pub sign called or a sign of the opera, and there is. Uh, there is Cuzzoni literally raking in, literally with a rake, money at money, stacks of gold. Yes, wonderful. Um, I feel like the opera stars then were the pop stars of today. Well, they were. Um, they were. They were the pop stars of today, or the footballers of today. Right, you know. Yes. <laughs> you account in the book. I mean, he wrote an um, opera and oratorio uh, all through his life, but there is a shift um, in the late seventeen thirties where. English oratorio began to prevail over Italian opera. What, what accounts for that, do you think? Is it because these Italian stars were wearing of London and they were drifting back to the continent, or was it that he had a stroke in 37? Or are there other market forces at play, what, what, the, what all, the punters wanted? All the above. I think the important thing is that ever since he'd arrived, there had been, and been, as I said earlier, this whole Italian opera thing, you know, foreign stories, foreign singers, foreign language. There was always mutterings in the press and no doubt in the, in the pubs. Why can't we have stuff in English? Why do we have to have all this foreign stuff? And you know, people like Addison and Steele in The, in the Spectator were quite vitriolic about this you know, and made great fun of <coughs> Handel all the time. Um, but uh, it, clearly he thought about this quite a lot. Uh, just at the back of his mind. And interestingly, and there was a period in the late teens, in 17, 17, 18, when there wasn't any Italian opera in London, when he went out to, um, to work for the man who became uh, Lord Chandos, out in Edgware, actually, um, a beautiful house called Cannons, where he spent uh, a summer or two in the country. And uh, he started writing stuff in English. He wrote what we now think of call the Shandos anthems or the, or the you know, English psalm settings in, in the English language. He wrote Aces and Galatea, absolute masterpiece. It's a pastoral piece which I think reflects very much the setting where he is. You know, he likes to, you know, it's a story about nymphs and shepherds and suddenly it's not, we're not in a city, we are in the countryside and it's gorgeous. And he sets the English language. Also, he sets a text of an oratorio called Esther, and puts it on a shelf and forgets about it. Whether it was performed in canons in 1718, we don't quite know. But um, it, anyway, he puts it away and, and goes on, starts his, his opera company, which confusingly is called the Royal Academy of Music. Nothing to do with yes. uh, the place <laughs> up the road. Uh, it simply meant it was an, uh, an, a, a play, uh, an opera company with royal patronage. Um, and, and for the next, you know, 14, 15 years, wrote operas constantly for the Royal Academy of Music. And then somebody in the 30s, 1732, somebody else got hold of a score of this Esther and put it on. And Handel was so incensed that he said, wait a minute, that's my piece, you know, grabbed it back, rewrote it, and put it on himself in his own theatre in the Haymarket with his Italian singers, got these friends, his mates from the... Um, from the ecclesiastical choirs, this is important, which he now had very good relationships with since the coronation, uh, the, co the uh, Westminster Abbey and St Paul's, that got them all together. They were all fantastic musicians, these boys and gentlemen, uh, as they are now. You know, they could read anything, they could sing five-point counterpoint, they were just well, marvellous. Wrote great choruses for them and put on his own Esther, and the public loved it. 
So the following year, he did another one. And the year after, and you can see that in the 30s, the public are sort of baying for more of this. And of course, in Lent, when there's no theatrical performance allowed anyway, uh, you can tell biblical stories. So let's have oratorio instead. And he would put oratorios on in his theatre, at first with his Italian singers, but more and more with English singers. Um, and that really is what happened in the 30s, is that he just shifted his emphasis towards oratorio. And then, of course, all his dramatic instincts were somehow released all over again. Mm. When, uh, when he had English, really great biblical stories, fantastic stories to tell, which people now understood, which had a relevance to the time of year, to contemporary worship, um, and to his own faith, which, by the way, was, was very strong, uh, etc. It, it was a sort of no-brainer uh, for him. And you know, that's why, really, when he stopped composing, he was absolutely at the top of his game. You know, the last pieces he wrote, like Jephthah, <sighs> doesn't come much better than that. Now, we've got this far in the conversation, and one gets about three quarters of the way through the book, and we haven't yet evoked the M word. And then he sets off to Dublin with, oh, uh, with, a, with a case of manuscripts, um, one of which is a little a choral piece called The Messiah. And it, had, it was successful in Dublin, but it didn't quite take off in initially in London. Just give us a, a little insight into uh, all that. The, the, he, he had a wonderful time in Ireland. He thought he was going for six weeks to do um, uh, a series of six concerts in Dublin. He stayed for ten months. Uh, they immediately wanted another series of six concerts and more stuff, uh, so he did that. And they, after that second series, they wanted more. And he had in his bag this piece that he'd been writing for some time called Messiah. Well, when I say he'd had it for some time, he wrote it in three weeks. Um, I have to bring in here this important man called Jennings, Charles Jennings, who wrote the libretto, who had already written um, Saul for him, would later write Belshazzar, but had put together this brilliant uh, compilation of bib biblical texts to tell the story of the Messiah, which is pretty um, ambitious. And he'd... He was so um, fired by this that he'd written it in three weeks. And he'd had it in his bag, took it to Dublin. So when he'd run out of everything else that he'd brought to Dublin, he thought, OK, let's put this on. And he had to get a cast together. And uh, some of the singers he had there would do. But uh, and he found significantly, for instance, a wonderful woman called Susanna Sibber who was uh, actually an actress, not a singer at all, but she had an amazing quality to move people. And she could sing, she was related to the Arne family, so she, was, uh, she had music in her blood, but she wasn't really a singer, she was more of an actress, but he trained this woman to sing in the first performance of Messiah. She sang the first He Was Despised. He wrote that for her. and. Um, she, she was, as it happens, uh, she had a few social problems because she'd had a, a bad marriage, she'd, had a, um, she'd been beaten up by her husband, she'd fled with somebody else, had a child with somebody else. So she was a bit of, uh, a, a, bit of a social outcast in London. Um, but apparently when she sang He Was <coughs> Despised in Dublin, the Dean of Dublin stood up and said, Madam, for this be all thy sins forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> 
And Handel adored Susanna Sibber and went on writing for her as much as possible. But of course, she wasn't really a trained singer. And when, when he got, they got back to London, then she kept sort of getting vocal problems. And, and after three or four oratorios, when he wrote wonderful, soul, uh, soulful arias, which is what he could do best for her, he, he, he gave up. And she had a very successful career with David Garrick in Drury Lane as an actress. But you know, the fact that he found her in Dublin, because she just happened to be there and trained her up to do this. So I will get to it, your answer to your question. <laughs> she, um, uh, the, the Messiah was a huge success in Dublin. And um, the, the press was, um, there was just great. And it was so exciting. They had to. They had to tell people, you know, not to have hoops in their dresses and not to carry their swords so they could cram more people into the audience <laughs> and all that. Um, it, so he brought it back and he was so excited. He wrote to Jennings and said, "We've, you know, this is this has gone really, really well." But he was nervous about putting it on here because his performances of Messiah of, of, of his oratorios were all in theatres, in the Theatre Royal in the Haymarket. And uh, he was nervous about this particular sacred subject, which was the story of, of, of Christ, not just an Old Testament person like Esther or Belshazzar or whoever. Um, and when, they, when he did put it on, he even billed it as a sacred oratorio, didn't call it Messiah or anything. And sure enough, uh, people were offended by it. Bishops were offended. They did not want the voice of God to be heard uh, in a theatrical environment. It was sort of besmirched the Bible. And uh, people stayed away, and eventually <coughs> he replaced it with something else. So Messiah went on to the back burner for a bit. What is lovely about it, though, is that um, a few years later, he became, as he was often involved with charitable um, activities, he became involved with the Foundling Hospital, one of the most, of course, heartbreaking charities in London then as now. You know, there is nothing more heartbreaking than vulnerable children or babies. And um, uh, indeed, Hogarth, whom we've talked about already, was one of the founding uh, governors of the Foundling Hospital. And it was he who had the idea that we're going to raise money for the Foundling Hospital by uh, painting lots of paintings and displaying them. And but effectively, this was the first um, art exhibition that people paid to come and see. And a lot of money was made for the Foundling Hospital. And so Handel thought, OK, we could do music, a concert for this. And so he produced, he also, by the way, built an organ for them and paid for it himself. That was the first thing for their chapel. And then he said, OK, let's do Messiah and we'll do it in Nantes. And of course, because it was for A, in, a, in the chapel at the Foundling Hospital, B, it was in Lent. C, it was for a charity. People flocked to it. And then it was became an annual event for the Foundling Hospital. But also, he then had the courage to bring it into his seasons in, in the West End, where it did fine. And then gradually, of course, it spread through, through the nation. And then it spread through the world. And I think even Handel, who, who was sort of optimistic and um, ebullient and a very positive man, even he would have been astonished to learn what Messiah has become, the mm. most famous classical music piece, the most famous piece of music probably ever written. <laughs> and that little thing that was turned down by the first audiences in the Haymarket is Messiah. 
Wonderful. Time is racing. Uh, one last question from me. How has this extraordinarily deep dive into his life and all these details and um, how has it changed your perceptions of him, especially in terms of your performance? So will your next hundred messiahs be, be coloured in a different way because of what all you know now? Uh, I, I would like to think so. I mean, I feel I've got to know him really well and that's quite hard to do. You know, uh, when I wrote the Mozart book, for instance, you know, we have three volumes of letters of Mozart's. We have hundreds of letters. And he was as great a letter writer uh, with the word as he was a composer. I mean, and you really get to know him. His personality comes bouncing off the page. With Handel, we have 20 or 30 letters. And they're mostly business letters, and they tell us nothing. <laughs> He's really hard to get. There's only one letter that's really emotional, which is when his sister dies and he writes to his brother-in-law. But it, it, he's very hard to get to know. He was a very private person. Um, we, you know, he never married, he never had a significant other. He lived alone very happily, very comfortably in Brook Street round the corner. Um, but I think he was, um, he was a sort of a lone wolf in that sense and perfectly happy to be so had great friends at all levels of society, but at the end of the day, I think liked to go back to Brook Street and shut the door and write some more music, and that was his life, and he was quite happy with that. So I've, I've got to know him quite well, and, and there, are, there are pieces of, that I do now where I, I, I'm, I'm happy that I know so much more about the context of everything that he wrote, and I know what sort of a state he was in, whether he'd had a stroke or whether, um, you know, he'd had an accident in his, uh, a road accident in his carriage in Holland, or you know, what, what had been going on in his life. Or, um, that always brings something to bear on, on one's um, insights into performing. But uh, ha having said that, every time one performs something, that it's always different. Uh, and you get new insights, you know, with every different set of musicians, with every different concert hall, with every different climate, with every different audience. Never <laughs> underestimate the uh, influence of audience in, in, in that, you know, that essential dialogue between audience and performer, which was so important to him and so important to all of us. So I, you know, I don't want to be too gooey about knowing Handel more and better now, and whether it does affect my performances, but um, I certainly, love to do his music as much as I can and um, and and I raise a glass to him at the end of the day because he would have done that too. <laughs> 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 On behalf of everybody here, keep shining, keep making wonderful music. Thank, Thank you very you much James. indeed. Thank you. Jane, bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you.